This podcast deals with sensitive issues of sexual assault and gender-based violence. Please make sure to take care of yourself in the process of and after listening. best, most memorable nights I've had in my life were in China. Late nights and mornings with my girlfriends, partying for endless hours, ending up eating chips for breakfast at 5 a.m. <laughs> I felt full of confidence and full of life. Funny to think the six of us were only 16 years old. Despite all these adventures, we were always safe. I still wonder how. Let me explain. My journey starts in Romania, where I grew up a post-communist, extremely misogynistic society. And my childhood was quite restricted. I couldn't stay out late or go out with my friends too often. So when I moved to China at 16 to attend an international school, I tasted freedom for the first time. Feminism was definitely not a close concept to my heart, but what did I even know about it? The irony is that one day I would perform in the vagina monologues event in my school, and the next I would refer to feminism as hypocritical. Over the years, I've started asking more and more questions. What is feminism actually? Why did my mother get fired when she became pregnant with me? Why was my grandmother judged by her family when she considered leaving? How did our elderly neighbor dare try to kiss me as a minor when it was just us in the elevator? And why does nothing happen to men that catcall me and my friends on the streets? I started searching for answers everywhere. I volunteered for a member of the Romanian parliament who fights for gender equality. I took college classes about feminist history. I started following feminist NGOs on social media. And two years ago, I actually founded a feminist NGO myself to connect with other young women and help raise the level of female leadership in my country. It's called Her Time Romania. But no matter how long I search for, there are always more questions. And I can't help but think back to those nights in China, to the years I spent there and how oblivious maybe I was about these issues, although some I had experienced and others I had heard of. Last year, I started learning about Chinese women's love for Mao. He quite famously once said, women hold up half the sky. Of course, because the demand for the workforce was high. And in that same course, I also learned about foot binding, arranged marriages, and the control over women's bodies that came with the one-child policy in China. And then, on November 2nd, Peng Shuai, a famous Chinese tennis player, posted an important note on Weibo, one of China's largest social media platforms. She wrote that in 2018, Gao Li, a 75-year-old retired Chinese politician, coerced her into having sex with him. She wrote, I did not consent that first afternoon. I cried the whole time. All of this information left me with one big question that I couldn't stop thinking about. 
How could the public discourse about women have changed so much from Mao's time to today? What is being done about all of this? And what role does censorship play in China? I felt I had discovered something bigger. In this episode, you will hear from several women from China and beyond. Their journeys with feminism, the efforts they have made for activism, and how they have managed to be a part of the dialogue on these issues despite China's constant censorship. You and I will be pursuing this exploration together. Welcome. You're listening to Who Holds Up Half the Sky. The first thing I learned in these past few months is that I wasn't the only one with these questions. Nice talking to you. Wang Zheng is an associate professor of history and women's and gender studies and an associate scientist at the Institute for Research on Women and Gender at the University of Michigan. With every uncertainty I communicated to her, she provided an answer. And not any type of answer. Actually, I have a piece on Chinese censorship. It's on that website. A lot of writings on that. And also I have a personal page. Then you, you may be interested in that book, The, the Socialist the State Feminism. She wrote entire books about these questions I had, which started in her mind at a similarly young age. Well, that's a huge. My mom was an illiterate woman with bound feet. For centuries, young girls in China were subjected to an extremely painful and debilitating practice called foot binding. Their feet were bound tightly with cloth strips, with the toes bent down under the sole of the foot. It was considered desirable for marriage. Always an arranged marriage. Considering women were not allowed the opportunity to education, society and men were the ones in control over them. But that was not young Wang Zheng's reality. In my growing up period, I was saturated with that kind of feminist ideas. Basically, that kind of social feminist ideas is that women have to be independent, not to rely on men. You have to have economic independent capacity. And the men are my equal. You, you never think about yourself as inferior to men because all those cultural products were saturated with uh, revolutionary heroines. Those are your role models. So you believe you're not inferior to anybody. After her departure to the U.S. for higher education, her world completely changed. I still thought of myself as a totally socialist woman liberated. But then when I started to take courses in U.S. women's history, then I realized some areas that Chinese social feminist revolution have not touched The 1980s is the transitional period in which the Communist Party abandoned their goal of socialist revolution and started to embrace global capitalism. This change in society pushed her to dedicate her life to the questions that arose. She wrote books, collected diplomas, and became a true leader in the pursuit of gender equality. So I thought she must have a lot to say about Peng Shai's case. High-profile players voiced their support amid fears she went missing. Naomi Osaka tweeted, Censorship is never okay at any cost. I hope Peng Shuai and her family are safe and okay. Peng Shuai, 
A woman who is known internationally and who has built a great reputation. A hard-working woman. But according to Communist Party loyalist Victor Gao, there's no reason for any of us to worry. He refuses to believe Peng Shui was sexually assaulted. And his reasons are controversial, to say the least. Physically, she can handle many things better than many other women in China. Given her maturity of the mind and maturity of her physical condition, she can take care of herself and she can defend herself. Uh, I'm sorry, so, so you think because Peng Shui is, is a professional athlete, fit and strong, that it, it's not possible for her to be sexually assaulted? She is a very tall person. So for a person like my height, for example, trying to take advantage of Peng Shui, forget about it. Peng Shui's post about her sexual assault was deleted only minutes later. And when she came back to the public's attention, things got weird, to say the least. Today, Chinese state TV tweeted a copy of an email Peng allegedly sent to the Women's Tennis Association. The allegation of sexual assault is not true, she wrote. I'm not missing, nor am I unsafe. Well, of course, she must be under tremendous pressure from the government. And then we saw the, of course, I, when I say we saw, meaning that when people outside of China, we can see a lot of material that people inside China cannot see. The security personnel behind her, and she was monitored everywhere she goes. So obviously, uh, whatever statement she made after her reappearance it is not reflecting the true situation of her. It's under the coercion. Social media is, as we all know, one of those places where people truly use their voices. This is also the case in China, of course. But you might have heard, it does not last very long. In general, feminism is still very stigmatized and people don't want to get involved. So it's in a very preliminary stage. The person you just heard from is Lisa, a TikToker who was born in China but who is currently living in New York City. Oh, hi. You can call me Lisa. I'm active on TikTok as Lisa Talk. I talk about politics, feminism, my experience growing up in China for 18 years. You can imagine she would have a lot to say about censorship on social media. Creators in China, it's a different business model. For Chinese TikTok, which is Douyin, if you have 10,000 followers, you can already monetize your channel pretty well. Or why? It's a country with 1.4 billion population. Culture can update much, much faster. Popular culture. You have more competitors comparing to your niche here in an international platform. The platform also have a strong, clear guideline for censoring stuff that's allowed on TikTok. Like every single TikTok I post could be censored on Douyin if I say something similar. My entire account will get canceled. If your account has made World Witches America in its username, you get canceled. This happened to one of my friends. Lisa regularly posts TikToks of her thoughts about feminist issues in China with two goals in mind. One, in an attempt to educate Americans on these issues and her experiences. 
And two, in an attempt to connect with Chinese Americans specifically, which she says has been a difficult task. The Asian community is very fragmented in many ways. It's really hard to address like first-generation immigrants' perspective, especially. I think there are less than five like who are actually talking about this stuff coming from mainland China, which is insane. One of Lisa's most recent posts on TikTok addresses a case that shocked Chinese people. If you kept a stranger against their will, it's against criminal law. However, if you do that with a marriage certificate, that's fine. That's、uh, taking care of the women. So, are you aware of the chained women? This viral video threatens to overshadow the Winter Olympics. It shows a woman chained by the neck near her family's home, not dressed for the cold, while her eight children and husband enjoy a meal indoors. Public outrage over her case has been simmering for weeks. The cyber police came out to delete everything. Whoever posted on Weibo, their postings were deleted, and not only their postings deleted, but also their accounts were. The police will call them and also inform their the place they work. You know, threaten to fire them for for the post. The urban elite people joined: lawyers,、uh, scholars,、uh, artists. Xiao Ma is a Chinese student at Bennington College in Vermont. Grew up in Suzhou, China, but moved to the United States for high school. My name is Xiao, also go by Smile. I study mostly visual arts and literature. Currently, I am doing museum fellowship at a studio museum in Harlem. She was completely in shock to hear this news and watch the graphic video that came with it. This kind of situation has happened again and again and again and again. Nobody has ever talked about it. I mean, that is like the latest news about the idea of feminism. But that's not even about feminism. It's just basic, basic human rights. Like that is feminism because this person who is kidnapped and putting in a cage is a woman. But then, like, it's just inhumane. What intrigued me about what she said is that she had no idea about Peng Shui's case until her friend from Malaysia, also a student at the college, told her about it. Nobody knows about it. I only knew about it when I was talking to Alyssa. Everything that I know regarding these kind of things, like feminism, but also just basic human rights issues in China, is through this platform called Weibo. I started wondering. How can a group of people with similar interests and backgrounds have such different experiences online? What can you talk about is so limiting. If you say something that's too extreme, it will get removed. My friend circle are people who talk about it. That's all I see. But if it's like another person's Weibo, it's like a Twitter page, right? Like you see who you follow, and they don't follow these people, then they will never see these kind of things. A well-known problem of social media is when it comes to political discourse, our feeds are highly curated. If I only follow progressive friends and pages, once I go offline, I will be shocked to see that there are people who actually think differently. This is arguably also one of the things that led to such a strong divide in America between political groups, and at the end of the day, between people. Imagine that paired with censorship and lack of free speech. 
what opportunities are left for productive conversation and actual change coming from social media? If you put the feminism in it, then it's probably not going to get anywhere. It's just because, oh, how can you treat people like this? You know, when your freedom of speech is taken away, what do you do? How do you put out a message? The answer is as simple as it has always been revolutionary. Art. And Xiao knows a thing or two about that. There was a series of events that happened after COVID hit. There were a lot of anti-Asian hate crimes that has been happening in the United States. Recent thoughts, it's a series of posters of some blueprints, cyanotypes of what has happened in the history for Chinese Americans and Asian Americans. It's the layers of how history is repeating itself. We are still doing things that's harmful to our people. Artists joined very uh, passionately in raising their voice and they created a lot of uh, artwork. So many more artists like Liu Shi, Yu Hong, Cui Xiao Wen, or Dong Yuan. These artists discuss feminist and cultural issues such as the dissonance between private and public selves, sex workers' lives, taboos about female sexuality. You can read more about them and their work on the website newvoices.com. Their work is especially important in the context of China's history during the Cultural Revolution, when many artists suffered due to censorship. Talking about creativity, art, and activism, let me introduce you to a very interesting character in our exploration. The creator of one of the first radio shows in America about Chinese women and girls, Anne Feldman. I'm the founder and director of nonprofit Artistic Circles. For the past two decades, I've been a visiting scholar in gender studies and sexuality at Northwestern. And back in 1997, there was a program at the city of Chicago where I had gotten some funding for an earlier radio broadcast in Mexico City. And they liked that so much, they said, where would you like to go next? And I said, China. Anne spent six weeks in China talking to women of all backgrounds, listening to their stories one by one, which no one had ever done anything about the Chinese women. There was Women's History Month. There was Asian History Month. I mean, the stations needed programming. The unbreakable spirits that she found, as she calls the women, ranged from... The most radical thing that I found, and I talk about it in my book, I met a female Buddhist nun who was running a temple. There had been four female nuns running this temple in this community for 50 years. To celebrities like pop stars... Then I met Zhu Hua, who was kind of the number one pop star. She had purple hair, gorgeous. And she came to interview. I had a hotel room. Literally, the men were lined up in the hallway. And I started the interview. This is how famous she was. There was some construction going on outside the window, and we couldn't get a clean recording. So I called the front desk, and they're like, Zhu Hua, of course we'll stop. And so they stopped construction for her. Yeah. She knew what she was doing. When she would write lyrics, she was smart enough to know how to get around censorship. She had a beautiful voice. And even the first Chinese girl rock band. I heard them perform in a bar. They had makeup. 
They had dyed hair, they were smoking cigarettes, piercings, they had short hair, spiky, you know, and they played all the instruments. You know, there were five, I think five women, but they experienced some difficulties because they couldn't, they weren't getting paid the same as the men. They weren't getting gigs the same as the men. They tried to kind of veil their lyrics about the Cultural Revolution, but, you know, I'm pretty sure it was pretty obvious. These women were rebels. They were living life according to their own rules and challenging the public's opinion. But how was that possible in a censored Chinese society? Part of the unbreakable spirits is cleverness, is not butting heads directly, is using the beauty of music, is using fantastical lyrics that everybody knows exactly what they are. This is much more effective than direct fighting. If there's one thing I learned, art is power. What can we do as feminists outside of China? Amplify it as much as we can. You know, like a first step is to get the information out and to have people fall in love. I wanted this to be on, you know, public radio so that all kinds of Americans could learn about these extraordinary women. We do need to be careful how that happens, though. Communicating between cultures is more tricky than it seems, but it's essential to learn from one another. When you do engage in conversations like this, remember one important word. This, this comes to the problem of intersectionality, right? So for every feminist to fight against very specific group issue, there is a unique way to deal with it. And I think we can learn from the experience and stories, like encouraging stories from each other. When we talk about feminism, there is not one feminism, but there are feminisms. And the way women understand this issue also changed. Like today, pretty much everyone can call themselves a feminist pretty comfortably, but we're not talking about the same thing whenever we're talking about feminism. Everybody has a different experience based on how they grew up, their family, their current environment. Growing up during the 90s till 2010 period for the 90s generation was very unique. Everybody was progressive or open-minded and the censorship wasn't that strong. Yeah, we, we grew up, we were taught to be independent, we were taught to break the norm. We were taught to save China in many ways. My parents didn't let me grow my hair out. And I was sort of being treated as a boy, not because my parents really wanted a boy, but they think it's just easier to take care of a kid that way. I didn't really wear dresses or skirts. I was always very confused about my gender identity. The gender stereotypes didn't really affect me as much as maybe the other girls. Come into the conversation, leaving behind your assumptions and being willing to learn and listen before you ask how you can help. Constant self-reflection is one really important thing. Understanding your positionality and other people's positionalities and listening and reflecting understanding that you may be wrong and, you know, accepting your mistakes, apologizing. Özge Savash is a professor in psychology and mentor who was born in Turkey but studied and elevated her career in the United States. Among other things, she is a feminist and studies how people express and interpret political opinions and ideals through activism. 
To have these productive conversations, she says, Understanding that we all share some, you know, common problems across the globe and we're all dealing with patriarchy or heteronormativity in one way or another. But then also understanding our differences is also important. Definitely, I would say, get involved wherever you are. You know, make noise and just get on the streets and do something. Actually, it starts small and local. In this case, China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong feminists have a lot to share. What if this could be an opportunity to bring them closer together? Because Hong Kong and Taiwan's history is also very complicated, as you may know, which reflects in the society's take on feminism. According to an article published by The Nation, Hong Kong has never fostered a robust or radical feminist consciousness. This is in part because of the persistent myth among Hong Kongers that their home is a post-feminist society. These ideas have their roots in British colonial policy. After the handover, women in Hong Kong continue to contrast themselves with those living on the mainland. In Taiwan in 2016, Tsai Ing-wen was elected as the first female president. So the state is considered by some as having become the most gender-equal state in Asia. Feminist Current writes that there has never really been a robust feminist movement in Taiwan either. What's interesting is that, as you might imagine, people have quite mixed feelings about this, ranging from... I'd like not to touch upon that, actually. Two... The first women's studies uh, training, faculty training workshop I created in collaboration with Chinese University in Hong Kong and Chinese Women's College in Beijing. That was 2002. And then we collaborated with Taiwan. 2003, Taiwan Feminists hosted a group of Chinese feminist scholars that I organized. And we visited Taiwan University's women's studies programs. So we already had collaborations a long time ago. One thing is clear. If we as feminists wish to accomplish real change, then we must do that together. In our community, our city, our country, and even beyond. We can't limit ourselves to what we know because then we limit our minds and our opportunities to learn from each other. Chinese women are, as Anne calls them, unbreakable spirits. They use their voices through art, social media, activism, international collaboration, and make a statement. Since I first started asking myself these questions, I've gotten some answers. You and I listen together to stories, teachings, and histories of a larger system than we know of. But I'm still left wondering, how can more possibilities be created for young women to get involved? How can women in China be confident to take the courageous step of leaving a toxic partner if there is a new 30-day cool-off period for divorcees installed by the law? How can a conversation even be had about Uyghur women, their genocide and traumatic experiences? There will always be more questions and more battles to fight to obtain safety and equality. 
We must continue to think critically about the world around us, engage in conversations with people having different experiences than us, keep an open mind, and get involved however we can. This piece is a memory of Diana, a friend as close as a sister who I met in China and who will forever be missed and forever be loved. And in memory of my grandfather, who has always supported me in everything I do and who I wish to keep making proud. Thank you to my friends and family for their constant support throughout this process. Thank you to Senin Pirler and Susan Scorbati for their continuous mentorship and support. Thank you to Anna Feldman, Oscar Savash, Lisa Talks, Xiao Ma, and Wang Zheng for taking the time to discuss these issues with me. Thank you to the Ratio Foundation in Romania and Victor Ilie for providing mentorship opportunities for young journalists. And lastly, thank you to my team of wonderful young women, and not only at Her Time Romania, who consistently make the world a better place with their activism, enthusiasm, and powerful energy. You can listen to the full-length interview you heard extracts from in this podcast, as well as my previous podcasts by accessing my website, andreakoskai.com, A-N-D-R-E-A-C-O-S-C-A-I.com. The full-length interviews and the research you can find on my website present additional feminist topics such as navigating non-binary identities in China, the history of NGOs, public discourse about Uyghur women's treatment, and much more. Until next time, stay a feminist.